This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp to the cringe through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So what is on the examination table for this episode? Well, I have a guest with me, and as always, I always like the guest to introduce the film, even though I do this and I know I'm aware it's in the title of the podcast. I know it's not a surprise, but I just like that little mystery. So, um, like I said, I have a guest here with me and thrilled to have Brian Kuyper from the Movies for Life podcast and also one of uh, the fine, fine uh, kind of rotating crew of co-hosts over at the pod and the pendulum. Hello, Brian. It's great to be here, Nicole. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Um, thrilled that you can be here. Um, this is so exciting. I love Movies for Life. I think it's an amazing podcast. And um, also a huge fan of a lot of the writing um, that you've done. Because well, thank you. Because you do quite a bit of writing, and it <laughs> is fantastic. Especially writing that is kind of connected to the film that we are going to be talking about today. So, Brian, what film are we talking about for this episode? Okay, well, we're talking about, from 1988, uh, Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow. And uh, this is an interesting film, I think, in his oeuvre. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's unusual in a lot of ways from a lot of the other things he did, but also has a lot of connective tissue with other things he did. Uh, so I, it's falls at an interesting place and I've written a lot about Craven, um, specifically, uh, on, on the website, Manor Vellum. I, I wrote a series about how, um, religion works its way into a lot of his work um and i think a lot of that was sub unconscious to him uh yeah. this is w- because he always it was interesting you know doing a lot of research and interviews and things like reading a lot of interviews from him unfortunately i i never had a chance to interview him myself uh he passed away uh four years before i ever found my way into the writing space but um i I see in these things, you know, he would say things like, I never, I I wish I had never mentioned that I was raised fundamentalist because um, people make a big deal out of it. And yeah. it's like, I don't think it's in any of my work. And it's like, I watch his movies and I go, it is all over his work, all over it in lots of different ways. And he really only specifically addressed religion twice. One of them was in Deadly Blessing, one of his early movies, and then here with The Serpent and the Rainbow. And I just find this movie fascinating. Uh, it feels like he's sort of 
looking at issues that he dealt with, you know, from religion to um, marrying that with science and with reason that he was, you know, reconciling that, I guess, with science and reason, which he had, um, he was much more into that. Obviously, he had left his faith behind long before making this film. Um, and but also like things like hallucinogenics and drugs and, you know, the effects that altered those can have on altered states of consciousness, which he was very fascinated with, as we see all throughout his work and dreams and um, various forms of reality. And I think that is um, why this movie is sort of the nexus of a lot of these kinds of things right here in this one film. And that was a long way to say this is going to be an interesting movie to talk about. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm really glad that you gave some of that context with Craven. Um Craven is is a a director that like you said he's had some really I think important themes that have been really weaved into basically his whole filmography mm -hmm. and you know, either small or large doses. Um, we've talked a little bit here on this pod about Nightmare on Elm Street, talking a little bit about the portrayal of uh, Freddie as a burn victim and how, mm -hmm. you know, it, these types of things can kind of be shorthand or kind of sure. a villain route. Yes. Um, but also talking about um, some of the characters, particularly uh, in nightmare on elm street uh dream master mm -hmm. um so um we we've only lightly touched on craven so i'm glad i have someone that i would consider uh a well studied uh and certainly much more of an authoritative voice on the master than myself to to i think provide that context so Yes, and this film in particular, I think, is an interesting one to talk about because just in doing a little bit of research, um, you know, a lot of reviews and a lot of folks say, well, this is really a marriage of uh, kind of not just horror, as we mm -hmm. think of Craven's films, but more of like a psychological thriller um, and has many more of those elements embedded than some of his other works. So, um, you know, again, in, in looking how this is kind of separate, but also, again, really having some Raven trademarks uh, yeah. within it as well. Very good. So, as we do here, let's bring in another friend of the pod, Wikipedia. For our plot synopsis, in 1978, a Haitian man named Christophe mysteriously dies in a French missionary clinic while a voodoo parade marches past his window. The next morning, Christophe is buried in a traditional Catholic funeral. A mysterious man dressed in a suit who was outside Christophe's hospital window on the night he died is in attendance. As the coffin is lowered into the ground, Christophe's eyes open and tears roll down his cheeks. Seven years later, Harvard anthropolo 
anthropologist, Dennis Allen is in the Amazon rainforest studying rare herbs and medicines with a local shaman. He drinks a potion and experiences a hallucination of the same man from Christoph's funeral surrounded by corpses in a bottomless pit. Back in Boston, Alan is approached by a pharmaceutical company looking to investigate a drug used in Haitian voodoo to create zombies. Now, one thing I do want to give a big disclaimer here. I've talked a bit about zombies, uh, especially, I think, in... Um, uh, kind of reference some of the Romero films, but uh, this is not what we think of as the Night of the Living Dead uh, reanimated corpse zombie. There's some flavor to that in this film, but I, I think as we continue uh, in the conversation, you'll kind of see where uh, zombie means something slightly different um, based on kind of the context of the film. The company wants Alan to acquire the drug to use as a super anesthetic. The corporation provides Alan with funding and sends him to Haiti, which is in the middle of a revolution. Alan's uh, exploration in Haiti, assisted by Dr. Marielle Duchamp, uh, locates uh, Christophe, who is alive after having been buried seven years earlier. Alan is taken into custody, and the commander of the Tonton Makut, uh, Captain Petrard, the same man from Christoph's funeral and Alan's vision in the Amazon, warns Alan to leave Haiti. Uh, continuing his investigation, Alan finds a local man, Mozart, who is reported to have knowledge of the procedure for creating the zombie drug. Alan pays Mozart for a sample, but Mozart sells him rat poison instead. After embarrassing Mozart in public, Alan, pers Alan persuades him to show Alan how to produce the drug for a fee of $1,000. Alan is arrested again by the Tantamakut and tortured by having a nail driven through his scrotum and then dumped on the street with a message that he must leave Haiti or be killed. Alan again refuses to leave and meets with Mozart to create the drug. Alan has a nightmare of Petrard, revealed to be a Bokar, who turns enemies into zombies and steals their souls. When Alan wakes up, he is lying next to Christophe's sister, who has been decapitated. The Tatamakuts enter, take photos, and frame Alan for murder. Petrard tells Alan to leave the country and never return, lest he be convicted of the murder, executed, and then his soul stolen by Petrard. Petrard puts Alan on a U.S.-bound plane, but Mozart sneaks on board and gives Alan the zombie drug. Mozart asks Alan to tell people about him so Mozart can achieve international fame. Alan agrees and returns to Boston with his mission apparently completed. At a celebration dinner, the wife of Alan's employer is possessed by Petrard, who warns Alan of his own imminent death. Alan returns to Haiti, where his only ally, a Hongan named Lucien Celine, is killed by Petrard, and Mozart is beheaded as a sacrifice for Petrard's power. Alan is then sprayed with the zombie powder and dies. 
Later Petrarch steals Alan's body from the hospital before the death can be reported to the U.S. Embassy. Petrarch takes Alan to a graveyard where, helpless in his coffin, Alan sees that Petrarch has captured Marielle and will sacrifice her. Petrarch shows Alan Celine's soul in a, I want to say it's, it in the film I think is pronounced kind of like canary, um, or canary, um, right. but Think of it as kind of like an urn mm -hmm. um, of someone's ashes. Allison buried alive with a tarantula to keep him company. Waking up uh, in his coffin a few hours later, Alan is rescued by Christophe, who is also turned into a zombie by Petrard. Having escaped by Petrard, having escaped Petrard's trap, Alan turns to the Tantamakut headquarters looking for Marielle. There, Alan defeats Petrard through battles of will, using Celine's white magic to drive a nail into Petrard's ground this time, and sends his soul to hell. As the Haitian people celebrate the downfall of Jean-Claude Duvier, uh, Marielle proclaims the nightmare is over. So, that is our plot synopsis. So, Brian, first question to get us talking about this film. What was kind of your first encounter with this film? And second part to the question, um, I know when you and I were going back and forth about potential films uh, to talk about, this one came up. And I'm, uh, I'm curious as to why you wanted to bring this film to the examination table yeah okay so i i remember back in elementary school before i could really watch r-rated movies i was becoming fascinated with um with horror but it was also something that scared me intensely so um i remember being particularly freaked out by a cover i saw of a girl lying in bed with a, like a group of knives over her face. Obviously that was the nightmare on Elm street cover. And then that sort of repellent fear of this, but also fascination. It just sort of drew me closer to this. And I had to know what this was. Um, and for some reason I found out who Wes Craven was. Okay. And so after hearing about, I knew who Wes Craven was, I think, before I knew who Freddy Krueger was, which is weird um, because I don't remember knowing a lot of directors or thinking about that aspect of filmmaking that at that time. Um, but it, it was after that, someone said, well, his scariest movie is The Serpent and the Rainbow. And I was, huh, that's that's interesting. Yes, they were like, yeah, this guy, he makes like the scariest movies ever. And Serpent in the Rainbow. And and when I eventually did see it, which was many years later, I didn't find it to be that exactly, but I found it fascinating. At first, I was like, wow, this is really different. This is not uh, the, and you, and even when I watched it again uh, late last night, I was realizing just how different it looks. 
right from the first frames. This looks like a documentary at first. Mm -hmm. There's a very travel log sort of feeling to the beginning of the movie in particular. And then in the third act, it sort of shifts gears and it starts what he's in the hallucinatory state and everything. It's like, oh, it's a Wes Craven movie. You know, you've got arms reaching out, <laughs> lengthening out, out of the jail cells and all the things like that going on. Um, but before that, it's just, it's so different in a lot of ways. Um, now I saw it, I think, eventually I, high school or college. And uh, I watched it with someone um, who he and I were sort of would watch horror films together. And um, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. I, I, I liked that. Um, but over the years, I've actually come to like it a lot more because I find it to be an interesting um, sort of look because it's Wes Craven partially in his eternal struggle with studios because he didn't really set out to make a horror film with Serpent and the Rainbow. He set out to make a film about Haiti, about the Haitian Revolution that was more or less true to Wade Davis's book mm -hmm. and was about voodoo as it really is rather than its tradition in films and American movies of zombies and, and voodoo dolls and and black magic and those kinds of things. Well, the studio was like, well, you're Wes Craven and we need a horror film from you. And so he kind of had to give into that or the movie wouldn't happen. So the film's a compromise. And you can feel that as you're watching it. And, and, and that's okay with me. Um, I think there are elements of it that are very um, accurate as far as its depictions of voodoo as, as this folk religion um, that is sort of merged with Catholicism. Um, there's a, like uh, Wade Davis in particular is very enamored of the pilgrimage sequence. Um, he thinks that is beautifully done. And I tend to agree. I think it's, 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 it's shows the religion, not as scary, but as something that's sort of ecstatic and, you know, people are, are devoted and, you know, the sort of love and community that, is experienced in that sequence is really wonderful. Um, but then, but then it has the black magic element too. And, and, you know, so it's scary, you know, so it's a scary movie, um, which uh, it is, but this is in a lot of ways, and just an anomaly in, in Craven's filmography. So when I set out again to write about Craven a couple years ago, this was one that just sort of fascinated me in a way that um you know there there are peaks and valleys in craven's career uh and filmography and this i think is one that i thought was sort of like uh it's it's okay it's sort of in the middle but it's over time sort of gradually increased in my view as as one of his more singular and personal works mm -hmm. and, and i like that about it um, why did I pick this? I mean, you, you mentioned some ideas to me, um, because I, one of my things that I do, I'm, the, I, I seem to write about three things a lot. I write about how, uh, I, I've written a lot about Wes Craven. I've mm -hmm. written, um, like I said, my series on, on, uh, religion in his films. I, I, I wrote a, 
a an article that got published in a academic um book uh called a critical companion to west craven um that just got published this year and that was about um the you know the the various variations on reality that are in his films mm -hmm. um i wrote a piece for bloody disgusting about his early films and how they in the first two in particular last house on the left and uh the hills have eyes and how they um affected the the rest of his oeuvre um sorry i'm using that word oeuvre i don't know why that's <laughs> the word that i'm choosing to say instead of filmography i don't know why um uh, so the, the, I write about that. I write about um, classic horror, which I have a column at Bloody Disgusting called Gods and Monsters. That's all about films that take place before, that were made before 1970, mostly. A couple of them have been 1971 films, but uh, that's just a tiny cheat because <laughs> they still qualify, <laughs> I think. And then, um, and then I write a lot about... Um, religion in horror I, that's one of the themes that's sort of come up over the past couple of years with me mm -hmm. uh, i think that's again because of my background uh i was i was not raised in a fundamentalist situation uh but i it was devoted you know mainline christian church uh, lutheran church in this case um and so i've always felt a little bit of kinship i guess to craven in that sense Mm -hmm. um as someone who you know craven was interesting because he was always sort of curious about religion i think and he never though he never he did not believe in a god necessarily he believed he seemed to believe in something more you know yeah something beyond the where we are something beyond the physical world and i i think that's fascinating and he explored that in a lot of different ways and so i think that i guess the serpent and the rainbow i mean i would have done love to do a classic horror film too i mean <laughs> but i was like what what do i i don't i wasn't sure what to bring up um that i hadn't talked about because i've already talked about the invisible man which i think would have been a great one to discuss but um but um sort of the convergence of those other things I think probably is best exemplified by Serpent and the Rainbow. Um, and the other one I brought up was uh, People Under the Stairs, which would be a great one to talk about too. But I was like, I don't know how qualified I feel to talk about that movie. Um, yes. So uh, this one is just one I, I, I don't know. This was the one that I gravitated toward, I guess. I feel yeah. very long-winded today. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm just excited, I guess, to talk about this one. Yeah, I feel like this is a film that, I, I hate saying this, but we don't talk about this film. We don't. Enough. And I, so when you had offered this, I was like, wow, I, I don't know if I've seen a lot of coverage on this one. And this mm. one could be really, really interesting uh, to kind of delve into, especially knowing, again, kind of your background. Um and, and kind of knowledge base of Craven, um, it's always, I think, really helpful, especially with a filmmaker like Craven in particular, to have some of that context of like, what kind of things are informing his work? What are the ideas that he's kind of percolating on throughout kind of his career? 
Mm -hmm. Um, and he, he wears a lot of that on his sleeve in his work. Um, and so I was really excited. I, I'm also a big fan of the people under the stairs. So I was really excited that you had thrown that one out there too, but I was like, well, let's go with serpent. Yeah. Uh, Um, so yeah, I, I think I had seen this one late in high school and this was one of the kind of speaking to what you talked about with your first experience with it you know it's a film that i think has a little bit of a reputation um simply because it's connected to craven Mm -hmm. um and so it you know people saying oh it's very scary and very intense And so I'd seen a lot of his other work, including like Last House on the Left, The Hills of Eyes, like his, his big ones. Um, And I, I kind of danced around this one. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, I gotta, I I gotta do it. I gotta sit down. I gotta watch this one. I know a little bit about what it's talking about, but I want to see what the deal is. And you're exactly right in how you kind of described it as an anomaly um you know a lot of reviews and just kind of like random things i saw um in kind of discussing this film they really discuss it in terms of kind of a marriage of you know some of that trademark craven horror Mm -hmm. uh with more of that kind of psychological uh thriller bent to it and of course you also have some political Mm -hmm. um undertones as well yeah always Uh, i i always find it funny when people say oh back in the 80s you know horror movies weren't political and it's like what are you talking about have you seen a wes craven movie every single one of his movies is political every one of them yeah (laughs) i think on some level exactly and i think that people are people are confusing the idea of that these many horror films are political without necessarily having the statement be explicit. Exactly. Or ideas yeah. be explicit. That's to right. Where I think, especially in today's society, I think films are tending to be more explicit with their message. They are. Um, mm-hmm. Over at the Pot and Pendulum, I talked about my favorite franchise of the late aughts um very heavy in kind of politics the purge mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and obviously that is a a franchise that is 100% just being very explicit with this message well we talked about that with the saw franchise too over there i mean that was um mm-hmm. i i think that's that's a key element and you know people focus so much on the traps and sort of the the quote-unquote fun of it you know that they lose that this has some really serious things to say i think six in particular has some some of the things that it has to say about healthcare system and the insurance system is is very potent um but that i think is it it's effective when it's done in a way where like in Craven and um, some of the best horror filmmakers will place their story in the fore- forefront and underpin it with um, 
political um, elements. I think uh, People Under the Stairs is far more political than this film. Um, This one, it's it's the under the it's set against the backdrop of this, you know, revolution. Mm-hmm. And they were filming in Haiti, you know, in the aftermath of the revolution they're depicting in the film. And uh, there was still unrest going on. They were um, they were looked upon with suspicion, you know, as they were in there. I mean, this was a crew of mostly white people in in this nation they were sort of seen as invader outsiders you know it's like we didn't Mm -hmm. they weren't luckily wade davis had a lot of uh he was present uh during at least part of the making of the movie and had um good relationships in haiti and was able to um to help some of those things and actually got some some of the great um footage they got permission um to actually film some of some voodoo practitioners um you know in you know possession ceremonies and various things like that so those are actually authentic um like the woman who's eating the glass and the man mm-hmm. who's getting the pins stuck in his in his face those are all um real things those are not um staged or makeup or anything those are the real deal and um i i think that is um another one of the things and i think at this point i when this was made it kind of had to be told from the point of view of this is outsiders going into this place um, I think the story would be told differently now. I think it would be told um, from point of view of of the culture rather than an outsider going into the culture. Um, so there there are some different kinds of um, of things that had to be done at the time. I think um, that were just sort of necessities of the environment and the business at the time. Um, so there, there. Are, I'm, I'm not going to say this is a perfect movie. I, I would never say that. Uh, but I think it's a fascinating one in a lot of ways, uh, for lots of different reasons. Sure, and you know, I think you, you're kind of hitting on, uh, you know, at the especially at the very end of the film with, uh, Dennis, um you know, and, and Marielle, you kind of have a bit of this white savior <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, moment there, which never, never one that goes down easy. No. Um, and the thing is, it's like, um, he tried to, I think, rectify that a little bit in something like people under the stairs where yeah. the hero of that movie is is fool you know it's mm-hmm. it's he actually saves the white girl you know it's it's sort of the other way around um but again um i, I mean i think i think people under stairs is a is an important step in 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 you know what we might call horror noir you know mm-hmm. um but it's also still told from the point of view of a white person and um so but you know, Craven also was a white man. I mean, you can't. It's it's just yeah. part of reality. Uh, so, um, 
So, like I said, I think this story would be told differently now, but at the same time, it is more or less, you know, inspired by Wade Davis going into Haiti and trying to, as an anthropologist, trying to study and discover, you know, something about the voodoo religion that is not um, known to the West, you know, um, and the zombie powder was part of that. Yeah. Um, and it's a real thing, you know, I mean, the, uh, you, it's, it's just, it is part of it. It's a very, um, it's, you know, fascinating element, uh, but um, it, it wasn't his whole purpose in telling the story either. Uh, so, right. And so I believe, so we've talked a little bit about the zombie powder. Mm -hmm. Um, technically what it is, and I hope I'm not messing this up. It's, uh, tetro, uh, dotoxin, right. Which is, it's a pretty potent um, toxin that's found in the liver and sex organs of some fish, like pufferfish, mm -hmm. um, glowfish, and toadfish, and in some amphibians. So, you know, when people talk about consuming pufferfish and you have to be very careful about how you prepare it, how you cut it. There's a whole Simpsons episode on that. There is. Um, <laughs> so this is what they're talking about. Yeah. Um. And, uh, you know, one of the things that really intrigues me about this film, I mean, wow, this is such a great film to talk to you about because just hearing you share a little bit more insights about, um, again, some, some of that Craven background, a little bit of the, the background of the film itself, um, I there's just there's a lot of interesting things to make connections to because especially with Craven, you know, going back to this idea of uh, things kind of being rooted in politics um, mm -hmm. of the time or, you know, kind of the socio-political climate of the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, Craven was very not shy about um, really making that uh, an underpinning of his work. And, you know, with Nightmare on Elm Street, there's obviously um, uh, kind of threads of that with the, uh, uh, I think, portrayal of uh, kind of tenets of kind of the satanic panic Mm -hmm. And the big national sexual abuse um, yeah. uh, trial that was happening at the time. Yeah, um, and that they, they actually soft-pedaled uh, Freddie's um, crimes for the film because of that. Uh, so, because originally it was going to be explicit that Freddie was not only a child murderer, but molester. And so they actually took that out of the original film uh because of this trial and they thought it may be too much maybe too far um exactly and this and so serpent in the rainbow came out in 88 
Mm-hmm. And so the president of Haiti, so the revolution and the overturning of authority in Haiti, that happened in 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, the president at the time, um, and I'm going to completely butcher the name as many times as I hear it or have said it myself, I will butcher it, but uh, Jean-Claude Duvier. Um, no, I think that's that's pretty good. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also known as Baby Doc. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took power in 1971 at the age of 19. Um, after oh, wow. His, after his father uh, was killed. And so uh, the youngest uh, president of Haiti. And so, yes, we we see, uh, you know, that in the background of mm-hmm. uh, this film. Uh, so I I really appreciate Craven's I think work in taking things that aren't necessarily like that seem fantastical, mm-hmm. but giving it a real bend of reality of rooting yeah. it in the world that we live in, and I think to what you said that really at the beginning that really kind of stuck with me is just kind of like his ideas his. Is kind of percolating on ideas of reality and kind of these in-between realms as yeah. well, um, which I find uh, very, very fascinating. Um, but one of the things that uh, I, I was really excited to talk about this film on this podcast as well, and something that we touched on at the beginning um, when you were talking about your your background and having grown up uh, in a Christian family. I talked a little bit about my background of growing up, as I like to call it, fundy adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have shared in previous podcasts about, you know, uh, my father um, being a Pentecostal, going to like uh, these tent revivals and faith healings um, and just some of the harm that can Mm -hmm. come from that um but this film deals i think also with ideas of kind of that faith in medicine Mm -hmm. um and kind of trying to uh see where those lines blur yeah um which i find uh really really thought-provoking and i just wanted to get some of your ideas on that yeah, well, I think that uh, Craven was always interesting to me about how he handled religion because he's never just wrote it off entirely. In a, you know, it it seems like he was he he sought out different forms of of religious expression. You know, after leaving, um, he he went to. Obviously, he grew up fundamentalist all the way through high school, and then you know his college, his first college was fundamentalist. He, but he found that when he sort of discovered the world, that there were other things out there. You know, he had been insulated from for so much. Um, the it sounds like the fundamental fundament, brand of fundamentalism he was raised in was sort of a fear of hell kind of mm-hmm. fun, brand of fundamentalism, uh, which 
you know, I know is, is not uncommon. Um, so it's sort of a, a negative focused, uh, rather than a positive focus, not, you know, savior kind of focus, I suppose, brand of Christianity. Um, so I, I think he, it seems to me that he sort of looked for religious expressions um, that have a positivity to them. So he looked into Eastern um, forms of expression and, and meditations and things like that. And I think as far as wedding that with science, I mean, he was him being a professor, you know, mm -hmm. at for a time um, surrounded by people of that sort of professorial world, I think, um, also had a profound effect. And I imagine sort of wedding this, reconciling this faith-based childhood with this, you know, science-based um, sort of formative years, I guess, you know, in his 20s and 30s, um, really kind of made him into the filmmaker he became. He never lost that intellect, but he never lost that sort of poetry either. You know, there's a, there was always a artistic element and a, a poetry to him. And, you know, he was very curious about everything by all accounts. And so um, I think this is where those two meet in their sort of most uh, fully formed filmic version, <laughs> you know, for him. Um, Cause the religious expression in, in, uh, deadly blessing is fundamentalists i mean they're freaky fundamentalists in that i mean scary yeah. people um and here that's not the case i mean this this religion um i mean obviously you've got petro and you know black magic and but he's also representative of this um oppressive governmental regime exactly. um and whereas the the folk, I guess, sort of the folk religion um, element, you have Paul Winfield's character sort of representing that. And it's very, it, there's, it's about protection. It's about love that there's a wonderful part where he, the wedding ceremony that, that he performs um, those kinds of things you see. Um, like I said, you know, that community um aspect and um cravens even he's he's talked about the community that he grew up with was very loving and it was very um uh though there were there were he's he has he he didn't he said i couldn't watch movies sure but there were some really good aspects of growing up in in a, in the faith community yeah and and so i i i i like that he was sort of balanced on that stuff. Yeah. And, and so I, again, I feel like I'm giving a lot of extra exposition. I'm and and I need to get to the point. Yeah. So, uh, but the, the point of all that is um, I think the expression that we see here of the, the, the reconciliation of those two, you know, is particularly in uh, Kathy Tyson's character of Muriel um, is, she has this, this wonderful, you know, like before they go on the pilgrimage with the pilgrimage where she's saying um, she's just showing him, you know, voodoo practices. And, it's like, mm -hmm. and he says, it looks like it's Catholic. 
And she says, well, it is, you know, this nation is 85% Catholic and a hundred and 110% voodoo. And he said, in Haiti, God is not in his heaven. He is in our bodies. He is here. And mm -hmm. you know, frankly, that's not an anti-Christian sentiment because um, Christians also believe, you know, Jesus or the Holy Spirit, you know, dwells in the body. You know, it's a your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I think that can be um, reconciled together. You know, the idea of Jesus living in your heart, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that those elements probably fascinated him. And the idea that she talks about how my faith and my science are not at odds with each other. You know, yeah. they they work together to make me more and you know he i i think um you know uh bill pullman's character dennis allen who's sort of a stand-in for wade davis um and i think to some extent wes craven is is looking at it from the outside it's like we don't as western uh, you know as people of the united states or europe you know or North America, we don't really look at it that way. We see a dichotomy. We see there's faith and there's science and never the twain shall meet. Um, whereas here they're saying, no, that's there's, there's more possibilities than that. And I find that to be, I don't know. I, I like that as a, as a person of, you know, admittedly, struggling faith in the past several years you know i i i my my religious background extends far beyond you know my childhood i i worked in a church for 10 years i um you know up until recently have attended church regularly i i i i'm not i'm not opposed to <laughs> you know um my my upbringing but I struggle with it right now. You know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going through what most people seem to go through in their twenties of, <laughs> I don't where I, I'm really grappling with the idea of God and, um, various tenets of, of, uh, the faith I grew up with now in my forties. So it's, it's sort of a, it's a different, Maybe my time. I've always been a late bloomer. I don't know. So maybe my timing's off. But um, but I just find it. Um, but Craven seemed to be having something similar going on, and he's working through those kinds of things in um this film and in others. And I I, I don't know. I I find that's I maybe that's somewhere in my in the back of my mind why I why this one is the one that I picked. Um to be able to talk some of those things through, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was, again, a, a very long-winded way of of answering your question, but uh, hopefully it was... Yeah. I No, I, I loved that because I think it really does hone in, I, I think, a lot of what Craven is wanting to speak on in this film in particular. Um, you know, the whole kind of conceit here is kind of with this kind of science versus faith is like you said, Marielle 
speaks to being able to kind of live in both, live yeah. with both. Mm-hmm. And then you have Dennis, who is also from a science field, a science mm-hmm. background, and has issue with that separation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I I like that we're kind of getting, you know, both views, but I think here, it, I, I think that Dennis, where in other films, you would see someone that's just very kind of standoffish mm-hmm. about, um, you know, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, we're Americans, um, we live in a country that does have, I think, a predominantly Christian population. Um, so when we see other faiths, we can either uh, approach it with curiosity mm-hmm. and kind of a, a kindness and a mm-hmm. compassion that yeah. is should be there. Or we can approach it with a kind of contempt. Yeah, uh, or fear. And, and fear, exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't think that Dennis necessarily does that. I think he does yeah. approach it with a bit of curiosity. And I think it's also very helpful that he has Muriel with him yeah. to be a bit of that bridge for him to make that a little bit uh, easier of a journey to take. Um. But we also have here, um, you know, what kind of puts Dennis in kind of this film's beefy plot here is the fact that it's a pharmaceutical company. Right. It's like, hey, we heard about this. Uh-huh. And this can be very beneficial for Western medicine. Yeah. Um, like anesthesias, I think, is what they're yeah. – Yeah. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. Because again, going back to the very uh, our our first kind of inkling of what this drug can do, uh, mm-hmm. we see Christoph buried and not moving. Mm-hmm. Um, he has been examined, um, so no pulse, um, anything that would indicate living. Yeah, they stick that but, when they stick that pin into his eye. It's like uh, just like under his eye. It's yeah. I, that always makes me go, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but then we get what I think is a really haunting and stunning shot of him of Christoph in his casket, mm-hmm. and you see just tears. The tear, uh, yeah. Um, and it's it's very evocative, and um, so it's it's think of it as a paralytic um mm-hmm. to an extreme form yeah. um so uh but where we get kind of the introduction of some of the more magical um or more faith-based um components is where we where we have discussions of the soul so right. uh the the purpose of this of cre of so Christoph has been sprayed with this powder, um, this drug, and so he's essentially dead. And what this allows uh, 
chart to do is to basically harness the soul and the power right. of that soul. And he keeps everyone's soul in these little like urn mm -hmm. um, vessels. Yeah, some sort of memento from the person that connects them, you know, something they owned in life, you know, a watch or a necklace or something like that that is attached to it. Um yep. I, I yeah, I've I've you know, this is a this is another image. Uh Petro keeps all these in in sort of a lair. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's his hell lair, and this is an extension of Freddy Krueger's lair. Yeah, uh, it's an ex it's you see it again in Shocker, Horace Pinker's um, sort of his is sort of all televisions and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think to some extent you even see it in Krug's apartment in the last house on the left. Uh, it, it's it's <gasps> yes, it's, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, but this one I think along with the Freddy Krueger lair and also uh, the people on the stairs again, you know, sort of that where, where man, I love that they're just called man and woman in that movie um, uh, keeps the, in, where he like dresses up like the gimp and, 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 uh, and kills the people in the basement, you know, is another mm -hmm. hell lair. Um, that was something that, uh, again, a lot of Craven movies that that sort of the villain resides essentially in hell yeah. is um, is a fascinating sort of through line, especially in the sort of center section of his career between Nightmare on Elm Street and New Nightmare. Um, there's a lot of this going on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the fact that Petro... Uh, yeah, he's got like a pile of skulls in there. Yes. He's got these, and he literally has people's souls in hell inside. It's just like, it's really strong imagery. Um, and um, it's pretty effective to show. I mean, I, I don't, I suppose it's shorthand, but it's very artistically done shorthand for this is a bad guy. Uh, and I do think it's interesting that it's not just because he's a voodoo priest, he's a, but because he also represents the government, he represents this oppressive government. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a fascinating element. No, exactly. And I love that you hit on the iconography of hell there too, because even though we're not dealing with Christianity, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of visuals that seem very much connected to kind of what we would see visually um kind of representational yeah. aspects of hell like the the skulls and yeah. fire and mm -hmm. all of these things um but yes so these so he's he's Essentially, once an individual dies, he's collected the soul, and then they come back. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, as I mentioned in giving the plot synopsis, when we're talking about coming back as a zombie, we're not talking about Night of the Living Dead type zombie, no. uh, necessarily. These are individuals that have kind of various 
um, uh, kind of levels of their faculties mm -hmm. um, and communication and all of these things. Kristoff uh, is able to communicate. He speaks English. We are also introduced to uh, a patient that is connected to the facility that Marielle works for. Her name is Marguerite. And she isn't able uh, to communicate, but still is able to, I think, convey some things um, to Dennis when he meets her. Because Dennis uh, speaks about, you know, the way that she kind of looked into his eyes or things that he saw were very much like telling him that he's in danger. So, um but well, one of the, if I can if I can read something real quick, this is um, this is a, a very short um, description of the zombification process, partially from Craven's uh, interview that I put into my article um, on. Yes. Uh, uh, so he, okay, so those who are chosen for zombification are pronounced dead and buried. Um, all the while fully aware of the terrifying reality that they have been buried alive, mm -hmm. which we can talk about that in a minute, too, because I, <laughs> I, I anyway, um, according to Craven, he met a zombie while in Haiti shooting the film and described what happened after these unfortunate uh, unfortunates were dug up. Uh, quote, uh, there's a severe series of beatings, then a second drug, uh, Datura which is basically a severe hallucinogen mm -hmm. and the repeated dosages wipe up that person's volitional system. Um, though this further processing is not depicted in the film, the hallucinogenic element is combined with Petrode's ability to invade the mental states of others. Uh, so that is just this terrifying. They were essentially revived to be slaves for whoever chose them to be zombified um and so it's uh it's just a frightening kind of unfortunate reality yeah um, of this you know this very impoverished country and um for that to be a fear i mean if you wrong the wrong person that you could be essentially wiped of your volition i mean we can call it their stealing their soul but it's you know it's right. just it's sort of like a, a reprogramming a, a conditioning to uh to just take everything that they have you know physically mentally um materially anything yeah, yeah. i and christoph speaks to i think a couple pieces of this because mm -hmm. in the film, I think uh, very slightly about being buried yeah. alive and that horrific experience. And then you also see Dennis yeah, um, as well go through that. And it's, we're much more kind of in that perspective. We're kind of put into his head, uh, which is yeah. uh, pretty you know, and of course, the great line became the tagline for the movie, you know, don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. Um, yeah. It's And that idea, 
Okay. So you mentioned paralysis and I have at various times of extreme stress, et cetera, uh, experienced sleep paralysis mm -hmm. where you're awake, your brain is awake, but your body is asleep and it is a terrifying thing. And my son has it even more extreme than I ever did. Um, he has been awake, eyes open. He can see his room, but also like elements from his subconscious, from the dream world appear in, in that space. So he can see things coming at him from like nightmares worlds. Yep. And um, so just the idea of, and there's a great terrific documentary about this called The Nightmare, Yes, which is okay. well worth watching. I think it's on, it's been around for a while, but it, I, I've watched it a couple of times and it just freaks me out um, because I kind of experienced that a couple of times, you know, just this idea of you, you know, you're awake and you're just like internally just screaming that you can't move. And it's, it's. Yeah. And so this is just sort of the extreme case of that to yeah. be lowered into the ground, fully aware of what's happening, you know, seeing and that little glass cross that he can see out mm -hmm. of, you know, and seeing the dirt pile up on top of the yeah of the casket. Yeah. I mean, and then knowing it also he has a tarantula on his face, yeah. uh, which, you know, to for keep me. Him company. Yeah, if you've ever if you've ever listened to my show, you know well that I'm an arachnophobe. Uh, we talked about arachnophobia. That was one of the most uncomfortable uh, episodes that um, we've had to date. So, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I just, um, yeah, I hate spiders and tarantulas. They're just that. So that part where Bill Pullman is sitting there with a tarantula on his face. I mean, that's just like my worst nightmare. Um, yeah. Well, and I think it also speaks to uh, the, you know, if, having gone through a number of different surgeries, medical oh, procedures, uh, sure, yeah. the absolute terror, even though we have trust in our mm -hmm. doctors, yeah, um, we we go through these things and, and everything ends up all right. Mm -hmm. There's always that inkling of fear of- Absolutely. What if I wake up in the middle of a procedure and I can't communicate um, because you're you're incubated, um, you are still heavily drugged if you've been under really heavy uh, medications following a procedure or surgery, you know oh. that it is a journey to kind of get yourself out of that. Like you have different kind of tiers of waking up and kind of being cognizant. There's the, you know, uh, my mom tells a story about um, after one of my surgeries, I got up to go to the bathroom and was very happy um, and laughing and talking to everyone. And she's like, we kept trying to tell you that you, like, you needed to lie down. 
um, because you could get hurt. Um, and she's like, yeah, you were acting like nothing was happening. And then yeah. like a couple of hours later, um, I woke up and was in immense, immense pain um, because the pain medication had worn off mm-hmm. and I had been up moving around. And so uh you it it's bizarre um it's it's a a really um just kind of bizarre experience and um you know speaking about kind of sleep paralysis i don't have sleep paralysis but i have had night terrors sure um Mm -hmm. for a bulk of my life and it kind of plays in a similar vein to sleep paralysis although not necessarily like paralyzed and you know still kind of like your mind is in one place your body is in another um but uh just this dreams having this really uh hard sense of reality and being so panicked within the dream of am i dreaming is this reality is someone going to kill me what is happening and then waking up and being like sobbing on the ground because it felt so visceral so um again this is something that craven has really touched on in Mm -hmm. so many different i think films of his and in a lot of different ways about just you know that are are kind of battle with reality and dreams and right the the components to that and then of course you add in the uh kind of the hallucination uh portion of it which is also again speaks to that experience of that blurring of reality that can come with um you know being under medication with dreams where you're like i am i seeing what i'm seeing Am I hearing what I'm hearing? What is going yeah. on? Uh, one of the things I love about Craven too is the way that he approaches going in and out of different forms of reality because it's not announced very often. You just are kind of there and then you're not anymore. Um, and that's right. as early as as Last House on the Left because the very first because there's a scene where one of the characters wakes up and the parents are standing over him, you know, with a hammer and a chisel and about to knock his teeth out. And then he suddenly wakes up, you know, so it's, <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street is the classic example where if you're paying close enough attention about halfway through the movie, you start to realize, wait a minute, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. That couldn't happen in the real world. So this has to be a dream. But it was never announced that when it, I I I keep on changing my mind as to how much of that movie is a dream mm-hmm. and how much of it is not. Um. So <laughs> my my theories uh, have continued to evolve on on Nightmare on Elm Street, and that happens here too. And you're just going in and out of of less fewer there's some dreams in this movie like the one where he sees the vision of the bride and the snake comes out of her mouth yeah and um 
you know, the coffin that fills up with blood. Those are dream sequences. But this final sequence, I don't know that it's it, the final confrontation with Petro is sort of like it's a hallucinogenic state. So what did this because he's still under the influence of the powder. Right. So what what was the reality, you know? How did this confrontation really go down? We don't really know because it's seen from and it's also seen from multiple perspectives because we see it from Mariel's perspective, too. She sees, you know, his soul, you know, it's the Jaguar and he's this powerful being. And then, you know, Petro, you know, sort of resurrecting is sort of this Freddy Krueger kind of character, you know, with the burns and everything. That feels like it was something the studio said, you need to have something, but you know, Hey, it it is what it is. You know, the, the chair chasing after him. I mean, is that something that is just his, an expression of his fears because that's where he was tortured. You know, there's a lot of interesting aspects about how hallucinations are depicted in this movie, even in the beginning, you know, when he's in the Amazon and he's given the, um, the, other sort of elixir by the by the shaman there um and he's he sees the jaguar and he's playing with the jaguar and then you see it from the shaman's perspective and there's nothing there and they're kind of laughing at him because he's just rolling around on the ground like yeah so he sees this jaguar and he's scared of it initially in his hallucination he sees it he's scared um but then the jaguar approaches him and it's like a big kitty it's like a big kitty yeah it's um it's it's such a it's such a neat i really like that about so much of craven's work i i you know that's why my focus on of the article i wrote for this critical companion was you know on rubber reality it was one of the things that he called it um where where you know it's it's flexible it's you, you know it's it's not a rigid world, you know, that you can just, and I think it's inspired by, you know, filmmakers like Buñuel. I think that yeah. was a huge influence on him. Yeah. Cause he often called him one of his favorite filmmakers. I think uh, David Lynch does that too, you know, mm-hmm. in a, in a sort of a different realm of filmmaking. Well, it's just an interesting way of working. And I think it's more interesting than declaring this is a dream exactly and obviously as we we've talked a bit about with craven's ideas on faith Mm -hmm. i think that also plays into kind of this reality play as well because individuals of faith are believing investing and living life based on something that isn't tangible in our world Mm -hmm. and so you know, lots of people will say, well, I had visions of God or of some uh, higher being, something that makes them feel connected. And, and we can sit there and say, well, that's that could be a hallucination. Yeah, that could be hysteria. That could be any number of mm-hmm. things. Right. Faith plays a lot with us asking bend reality a little bit and believe in something in a world that says, no, what you see is what you is what is there yeah faith says no there's more and so i like what you you said about there's there's something more than Mm -hmm. 
it's just a dream. Right. There's a lot of, I think, interesting things that he wants to say about these altered states. Yeah. Uh, well, and and speaking of altered states and bodies and faith and all those things that we've been talking about, the depiction of, of possession in this movie is so different from really anything else. It's, it's um, not a negative for the most part. You know, except for when Petro possesses the the woman to attack him and things like that. But for example, when Mariel, her possession is is like it's a natural thing. It's as natural as breathing, is what um, the the priest says, right? Um, right. So let I want to yeah. talk about that moment for just a second because it happens fairly early in the film, mm-hmm. and they're at this gathering. And we talked a little bit about it before because you have someone that is eating glass, you have someone. So it's just this big gathering and kind of a celebration of faith. And they're they're invoking um, the goddess of love. Right. And help me, since I think you have a little bit more kind of familiarity with this, perhaps... There's a couple of lines here in this conversation that Dennis is having. Mm -hmm. Something about Marielle being promised, because Marielle also references this later. Again, it's just one line. We don't spend time unearthing it, but I think she has a line where she says it from a very young age that she was basically promised to this goddess mm. and that basically gives this goddess this through line to yeah possess her right um and it's very celebratory yeah. and it's a goddess of love there's also a sensual component sure. um, mm-hmm. to it and but it's also very jarring because she starts off saying like no, no. i'm not going to do this today yeah. yeah and she yeah. seems almost afraid to mm-hmm. a certain degree like i don't want to do this I want to leave because this is going to be something that's out of my control. Yeah. Um, And then we have just a, a couple of moments with Dennis in this conversation. And we see her dancing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. And well, the thing is, that, and one thing I, I didn't really notice is that she's sort of you know, because because the uh, the the one character is sort of sort of takes a swig of alcohol and sort of like spits it at her. Yeah. Um, which it's like you know you're you're it's it's you're gonna do it. You know you you don't have a entirely have a choice in this. I think is which is which is frightening too. You know the idea of not having a choice in the control of your own body, um, and so. So there's sort of this double-edged sword. I, I called it a positive. I think there is a double-edged sword in the possession, but it's not like Reagan's possession in The Exorcist, you know, or something like that. Um, it's there's sort of a there's a there's an understanding that this is part of her practice of faith. Um, and she's not really afraid of it, but she doesn't necessarily always want to do it, <laughs> you know. Um, and I 
I don't know. It's an interesting aspect of, of, I think that just, it's interesting to see just a different, a different depiction of possession yeah. in a horror film. Um, and one that is not entirely horrifying, you know, uh, because I mean, so much of, I guess, religious horror, um, something like the exorcist, something like, I don't know, um, or the conjuring films, the first conjuring has an exorcism in it. Um, it, it, things of that nature, the exorcisms are always bad. I mean, there are, or the possessions are always bad. They always are painful. They're always, um, taken by force. They're always, um, you know, or various things like that. Um, Whereas here, there's there's a little bit of a two-way street going on. Um, and it's part of an expression of worship, which is um, fascinating. I think that Wade Davis and Wes Craven, really, when he set out to make this, was like I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to depict voodoo as a, as a viable, legitimate, I should say, religious practice, not as some sort of hocus pocus freaky you know we should be afraid of this kind of thing you know that has always been um i mean all the way back to the 30s with something like a white zombie you know the lugosi yeah. movie you know I, you know which terrific movie but you know still it's not an accurate depiction of voodoo i this isn't either but it's at least a little closer to the reality in some aspects than um than most have been up to this point i mean you know, voodoo dolls and things like that are sort of what we think of when we think of this faith. And it's just not it. Uh, it's it's an interesting. It's unfortunate that Wes Craven didn't really get to make the movie he wanted to make. But at the yeah. same time, that was the dance he always had to dance. Uh, even his best movies, he always had to make some sort of uh, you know, he had to give Bob Shea his ending to Nightmare on Elm Street. He had to, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He always had to make concessions, um, you know, after his first couple movies, at least to the studios because they had to be able to sell the movie. Yeah. So. No, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I think also in, in talking about possession, um, mm -hmm. you mentioned, uh, the possession of the woman at the dinner. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that there's also a level of possession with, like we were talking about with just kind of the zombification. Oh yeah, for sure. Because mm -hmm. they're being controlled mm -hmm. essentially. That's part of the collecting of souls is that yeah. then that soul belongs um, to, to the owner. Um, so I, Christoph has this line about, you know, uh, having to do horrible things and being aware, mm -hmm. um, knowing that he's doing this and not wanting to do them, but having no control. And yeah. I, to, to what you're talking about, I, I, this is a, a, a much different 
an interesting way to look at possession and what that can look like as opposed to just kind of you know a full takeover of someone's body Mm -hmm. mentioned kind of by force and there not being any awareness like in the exorcist reagan doesn't really at the end remember any right right yeah um she remembers the collar as being a positive thing Yes, and, and that and that's that's sort of a a nice little moment. But I, I but I should go on record. I love the Exorcist. The Exorcist is one of my favorite movies. But oh, sure. But but um. But yeah, it's it's coming at it such a different perspective. It's coming from a very Catholic perspective. Exactly. From William Peter Blatty, whereas this is like trying Wes. I could you, you could just feel in this movie Wes Craven really trying to understand. I don't think he entirely does. I don't think Wade Davis entirely does. I I think. But at the same time, neither does Dennis Allen, you know, neither does right. that character. So I think the push and pull of that kind of works to the film's benefit sure. um, because it's set the way it's shot. It's set so much of it's set in this way that is handheld and documentarian. And I think a very immediate feeling is really shot in Haiti, not on some stage somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say Haiti and the Dominican Republic, because after a while they weren't welcome in Haiti anymore and had to move. But, um, you know, but it's the same island. So they got to just, you know, uh, uh, shoot not too far away, at least. But it was... Um, so there's a lot of that sort of that grounded reality going on. And so that's why I think maybe it's a little jarring when some of the more sensational elements come into the movie, particularly sure. the ending sequence. Um, but I've been able to buy it more as I've sort of become settled more and more into Craven's filmography and been able to say, well, he does hallucinations and, altered states of reality all the time so i i can reconcile it now but when i first saw it i was like wow that's really just it's it just comes out of another universe um but but at the same time i think it's it it works for what it is um yeah so you know and i you're exactly right i i love the exorcist as well and it's not saying that you know there's no merit or interesting things about those depictions of possession. Mm-hmm. It's just coming at it from a very specific lens of, like yep. you said, kind of that Christian Catholicism specifically um, yeah. lens to where this is showing possession in just a kind of a different kind of way. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about just the aspect of being buried alive and being oh, aware. Yeah. And it's the same thing with this kind of possession where yeah. you just don't you don't have autonomy um over your body and mind but you're still aware um yeah. there's still kind of that component you know uh not an exact kind of similar vein but something very recent that has similar feel to it would be get out Oh right. yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great. That's a that yeah. That's a terrific uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. To where it's yeah, you're you're essentially possessed by yeah. someone else, but there's still that piece of awareness there. That yeah, your mind is just set back from from where you have control. Yeah. Um. So it, it's it's very very uh interesting, 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think we talked a little bit about, you know, just this idea. It's not a, a heavy piece of the film, so not a ton to talk on, but just this idea of, you know, this pharmaceutical company mm -hmm. from the U.S. being like, we've heard about this powder. Go find it because we want to use it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's some interesting, uh, I think, things to take away from that as well. Oh, from, yeah. <laughs> from a cultural, I think, standpoint mm -hmm. as well. And I think that that's also something for me um, in watching this and, you know, it it's something that I, I think the more I watch this film and probably films of a similar ilk, I think you really do have to just kind of sit and unpack like what what are some of the cultural pieces that we're supposed to be taking away with this? Because I have talked a little bit on the pod about, you know, obviously I am a white cisgendered female. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about my experience with disability, um, and growing up in the U.S. and so that's my that's my lens. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not going to be a, a comprehensive lens, right? For sure. So someone that grew up in a different background, a different culture, um, even different religious beliefs, which we've talked a little bit about, are going to have different um are going to have different relationships with things like these medications and mm -hmm. um, things like that. So, um, you know, something that was really sitting with me as I was watching this and, and, you know, like I said, something that you just have to continue to unpack as you get more and more, I think of these depictions of, of how, of how this can play out. Yeah. I, I think that, um, one of the things that the movie's trying to do at least um but again it's from the perspective of mostly white filmmakers is to say we tend to think of a third world nation as being inferior or backward or you know but they are quite sophisticated yeah uh culturally um when he talks about the making of the powder um, he says, you know, Louis Mozart could give any Harvard PhD a run for his money. Sure. And he says it's, it, it, he, he's kind of analyzing what it is. Oh, it must be the toxins, you know, it's like, but he says, but it's all strung together with this web of magic that's far beyond our comprehension, mm -hmm. you know, and then at the end, you know, there's even that title card that says it's been analyzed. We still don't know how it works. Yeah. You know, and I think that there's um, there's something in this about there's something beyond just the physical quantifiable elements of this thing that are um, that are just kind of beyond the realm of of what we can just intellectually understand. There has to be there's something more, you know, even even in that final title card saying 
maybe there is a connection between the physical and the metaphysical that we need to explore yeah. more. And um, maybe that's the heart of this movie. Maybe that's the heart of what Craven's trying to say. Um, and, you know, you brought that up before I ever really thought to bring it up was just that this movie is really about that reconciliation of the natural and the supernatural. Uh, and yeah, I'm that that's something that weirdly enough hadn't really occurred to me in those terms at least. And so I, I think that you're right though. I think that's very much what we see here. And I love that scene where they're making the powder. Yeah. Just um, all of these different where, I mean, they have to rob a grave and it has to be during, you know, certain phase of the moon and it has to be, you know, in this place, you have to use this kind of dirt. You have to use this, you have to make um, the frogs poison more potent, potent by putting a, a, a stinging um, sea creature on it and putting it yeah. inside the casket. And I, uh, it, it's, um, you know, and what, what it all is, I mean, we don't really know that we're not really meant to know, I think. Um, and I, I think that's just a fascinating because he just, he just boils it down to, oh, it must be the puffer fish poison. Yeah. And, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. It seems to be more than that. Um, yeah. And I think that that's yeah. how we often think about medicine, even <laughs> lots of people here in the West, and especially mm -hmm. those that are, um, you know, individuals of faith, like you, you always uh, tackle health issues with both medicine and faith, right? Like, right. It's... Well, I mean, there's the studies that there are about people who are prayed for. You just kind of go, huh? That I mean, that it's just like, what kind of effect can prayer have on a person? I mean, is it, is it give their, is their faith, you know, sort of increase their abilities, their body's ability to like the disease. I mean, it's very mysterious kinds of stuff, you know, and it's inconclusive data. I mean, there's not anything that it says for sure one way or the other. It's just like, it's just kind of fascinating that these kinds of things come up and you go, huh, you know, maybe there's something here. And I don't know. I, I've, I've always struggled with those kinds of studies and stuff because I'm like, I don't know. I mean, and and it didn't matter what kind of prayer. I mean, it wasn't necessarily like Christian prayer or 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 whatever. It could be from all sorts of different kinds of religious traditions, and you know, there were certain in some studies um, increased chances of healing in certain people, and um, and other studies there weren't. I mean, so it's just like it, it's it's all like. Uh, so much of it's so mysterious and who knows kind of stuff but exactly and yeah. what what is the psychological right what is that too yeah what and is the psychosomatic ability of the body to heal itself you know right yeah. you know if 
you know, it's all about that positive outlook, right? Like if you, right. if you believe it, if you believe that you can fight this and, and this treatment will work, it will. Um, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. There's studies that I think we're only starting to really get more of a glimpse yeah. into that. Um, yeah. But, you know, I struggle with um, some of this because I think there's, I think there's merit in, mm-hmm. I, again, I never want to, uh, to come down on anyone who is devout in their faith. I, mm-hmm. it can be a very beautiful and, mm-hmm. and lovely thing, which we've, I think, hit on a little bit in our conversation, but there can also be a lot of, uh, toxic components to it oh, as well. absolutely and uh, there's um ab- abuses and uh, all sorts of awful things that people do um you know they scam pe- people are scammed by it and things like that i mean i even growing up you know uh my brother is is deaf in one ear and um, there was a component, there was a very sort of Pentecostal charismatic component in the church my parents were going to. And they said to to my mom, it's like, well, just heal his ear. Yeah. And she, and she's like, I can't, I've prayed. I he said, but he's not healing. And says, well, and then they do this, they do this little trick. They say, oh, then you don't have enough faith. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, no, that's not true. Yeah. God, for I mean, and it's like, for whatever reason, my son is meant to be deaf in one ear and that's okay. You know, and, 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 and you know, it's not. And, and so I, I know I, it's just the, the whole, you don't have enough faith to be healed thing, blaming the victim, blaming or blaming, not even the victim, blaming the person who, who is um who who is disabled or whatever is is just it's it's horrifying that they do this and i i i'm appalled by all of that so yeah. i apologize if some of my wording may not be perfect i apologize for that no but i think especially now um you know we we still see uh, especially you know in a time of covid mm-hmm. with people particularly people with particular faith backgrounds being like well no we do we won't be vaccinated jesus is our vaccine and it's like well no right uh jesus is your vaccine and that he has you know by faith he has put people on earth to create the vaccine right so that you can be healthy and your family can be healthy and everyone can be healthy and and I think yeah. that's the clear, the clear, um, <clears throat> I, I think that's the, the, the far more, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, biblically accurate way of looking at it too. Uh, I think there's, uh, just this idea of, um, oh, I, I can, you know, physician heal thyself and this, that's okay. Let's take something out of context thoroughly here um but you know and say something like that um but the idea is yeah i'm i consider i guess 
you could call me a Christian humanist or something like that, where I believe that God gives people the gifts to um, of intellect and curiosity and yeah. scientific knowledge and things like that to um, to help their fellow humans. Yep. And so like exactly what you said, you know, um, God did not create us to be stupid. That's yeah. what I believe. I think, I think, <laughs> I think uh, he created us to be questioned, to question, to um, examine, um, to discover, um, you know, and that, that is, that's my view of, of, of this sort of thing is uh, like you said, you know, God created people that could make vaccines, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And I, I think that also there's, um, you know, outside of that, you have, uh, you know, just, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I, I go deep into kind of like this fundamentalist community um, that, you know, uh, I, I'm just really fascinated by it just based on how I grew up and you have, you know, folks that, uh, you know, not just certain medications, um, or vaccines or things like that, um, but all kind of medicine, oh, yeah. all kind of intervention mm -hmm. from medical professionals and really turning away from science and, right. I think to what we're talking about in the creation of this powder is that, you know, here we're seeing it really being a mix of both, right? It's the ingredients, yeah. it's the, the scientific combination of these ingredients and, and what properties they have, but then also this additional property or properties that we just don't understand. Right. And have a grasp of. Yeah. And so it really is about kind of, you know, for how it's depicted, I think, in, in this film and probably something that Craven was commenting on was really about, you know, these two components kind of mixing together, which I think is kind of underscored by, again, it's a pharmaceutical company that's kind of on the prowl for this because they're yeah. like, this could be very helpful for us. This could be a game changer. Uh, please go find it so that we can make lots of, of money. Of money. Yeah. yeah. And I have mentioned, uh, and this is going to be probably my hot take um, of the episode, but, you know, for my day job, I have worked with a number of folks from different pharmaceutical companies. And I sometimes feel as someone who has relied on medication their entire life, to live, um, mm -hmm. I I sometimes bristle at kind of the the villainizing of that sector of sure. mm -hmm. because they these aren't just people that are wanting to get money and it's not all devious individuals that are trying to do underhanded right. things in the name of science. These are people who, many of them, come at it from the same place that 
a lot of us would, which is I want to do something good. Yes. I want to help people who are dealing with this condition, this disease, this set of symptoms. Absolutely. And how, and how can mm -hmm. I? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have a tendency to, um, in our sort of Twitter-based or whatever you want to call it now, you know, social media world, to paint in broad strokes, you know, and give a whole swath of people the same label. And I, I just don't think you can do that. Um, there's so much more nuance in the world yeah. than um, than <laughs> social media allows, you know, than uh, 240 characters allow, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I think that's a, that's a hot take or not. I think that it's well worth saying. All right. Um, so we've talked a lot about kind of the various components of these films, how they kind of connect to us, uh, both from a personal, I think, perspective, but also you having done so much research and just background on Craven and his films. Is there anything else um, with this film that you you want to hit on? You know, I think we really kind of covered the the main things that I find most fascinating about the movie. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things that I think are being explored here that are just really interesting. And like we've like you've said, I mean, not often discussed. I mean, one of the reasons I picked this one is because I don't think I'd ever get to talk about it anywhere else. Too, <laughs> I I can't imagine us really covering it elsewhere. Um, so. Um, it's not a franchise, so you right. know, that's, it's probably not going to come up there. Um, and then on, um, on my show, um, the only, the only place we might place it would be if we did like an underrated Craven episode, because I think this is underrated. I think this is, um, this is one that sort of gets lost in the shuffle of that middle period. Uh, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street gets all the attention, and it, as I think it probably it's it's my favorite Craven film. Uh, it's probably my favorite horror film, period. So I mean, I get it, um, but uh, this I think, like I said already, is just kind of there's a lot of personal expression I think happening in this film. Uh, it's a real departure in a lot of ways, and. It doesn't look like any of his other movies. It doesn't really feel like any of his other movies. And it, it's really got something going on. Uh, I, I know he, he was, he always, Craven was always trying to break out of being labeled as a horror director, <laughs> you know, right. um, but um, he eventually kind of embraced it. But um, this is one of those attempts. You know, and you can feel that, especially in certain elements of the movie. And uh, there's some, there's some really interesting. Uh, you could just see what he was capable of when really given the resources to do it. Yeah, and you know, uh, Craven didn't do a whole lot of work that was basically adapted. No, other... not in, especially not in this era, because uh, right. he he did uh, starting with 
uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, um, which was the movie right before Scream, he um, all the way to his second to last movie, uh, My Soul to Take, he didn't write any of them. Yeah. And except for My Soul to Take was the only film of his latter period that he wrote uh, as well as directed. So this is unusual for this time that he didn't write this piece. Yeah. So, And I think we talked a little bit about, which I, I really appreciate you talking about, you know, the elements that he wanted to maybe go deeper on Mm. or focus more on in the film. But, you know, again, had to make those concessions when it comes to making the movie because he's Wes Craven. The studios Mm -hmm. are like, hey, you're Wes Craven. Right. You kind of have to kind of have to do something in this uh, kind of genre, this kind of style over here a little bit. If we could kind of move you more this direction, that would be great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I know we talked about it at the beginning. I think it's, it's a really interesting film, not one that's talked about, um, at, I, I see talked about really that much at all. And I think it really brings together a lot of different pieces of things that we would see throughout Craven's filmography and his career. And yeah, I think it's really beautifully done yeah uh, as like as, as different as it is from in look and tone from a lot of his movies it really has so many of the same themes and yeah. you know the only one that is this is one of the few does, that doesn't really focus that much on family uh al- mm-hmm. almost all of his other movies did in some aspect but um all of his other big themes you know about religion and you know various states of reality are all there and um it's and i suppose you could call sort of the religious community of this movie sort a a sort of family and i i think so a lot of his major themes are recurring here yeah so and the socio-political underpinnings of it all too exactly exactly excellent uh well we have talked about uh the serpent and rainbow if you guys have not seen this film do seek it out it's not streaming anywhere but it is available on uh vod via your provider of choice uh if you're interested in checking it out because again i think it's it's one that i know for me i was really into craven's work and it this was the one that i i danced around i was like i had I don't know if it's time yet. Am I ready for the serpent in the rainbow? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And then you do. And it's a very different film than I think what you may be anticipating. So yeah, uh, give that a go. And also uh, the book as well. If you want to, I think, dig a little bit deeper on those mm-hmm. themes and ideas um, around specifically kind of the context of voodoo. Yeah. Um and, and, you know, more of that kind of cultural uh, component. I think the book is a wonderful. Yeah. And, and I, I, as far as I know, it's still reasonably priced. <laughs> I mean, you mm-hmm. can still, you can still find it around. I, I didn't pay too much for this. I don't think. 
Um, but yeah, it's uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow is the title. Uh, a Harvard scientist's astonishing journey into the secret society of Haitian voodoo, zombies, and magic by Wade Davis. Um, yeah. So it's and, I, and it's it's different from the movie. It's not the same thing. It's um, uh, again, I think it's I think Craven wanted to make something more like the book um, than he did. Yeah. And and there's a certain amount of controversy over you know Wade Davis's own credibility, but you know sure. I don't. But I think that is um, something that is. Um, but it's still an interesting read and uh, and a and a pretty good book i haven't read it in a while to be honest but um i did read it in college i wrote a paper on it that's where i first sort of um when i had to take a anthropology course in college and so that was one of the options was that book very good and also yeah. if you are someone who likes a audiobook um serpent and rainbow is also available excellent uh, that's good to know on audible so awesome. there you no, go. That's good if, to know. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people do that. I, I go back and forth with my books. I like a physical copy, but I also walk to and from work every day. And that's yeah. about an, an hour each way. Oh, so, I love audio books. I, I, I'm, I'm a gym rat. So I, you know, when I'm doing my cardio and I'm bored to death doing my cardio, I tend to listen to audio books. Um, right now I'm listening to, Werner Herzog's autobiography read by Werner Herzog. And if you've never heard Werner Herzog speak, um, it's, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> well, there you go. I love now, that guy. So there you go. Not only are we recommending this film, but you now have some reading <laughs> material uh, to add to your list as well. Well, Brian, thank you so much uh, for, for being on this episode for, just the wealth, I think, of knowledge and background that you brought around Craven in this film, but also in sharing a little bit of, you know, some of those personal connections. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's so amazing and, and just some really lovely insights. Tell folks where they can find you and Movies for Life. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say... Um, I, I hope, you know, some of my terminology may not have been perfect. I do apologize for that. I hope that I, I tr I'm trying and I'm learning as best I can, you know. <laughs> so if I if I slipped up on any of that, I just want to give that little disclaimer. But anyway, if you um, want to find me, you can find me on uh, any of the, I guess, current socials uh, at Brian Waves 42, like brain waves, except it's, you know. Brian instead of brain. <laughs> um, and then uh, you can find uh, my show uh, that I do with uh, Michelle Egan, uh, uh, Movies for Life. It's at Movie Life Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and yeah, we do a lot of double feature pod, uh, double features about, you know, just trying to pick movies that have a link to each other. Um, we each choose one and, and bring it to the table on a topic uh, that the hope is that it's a movie that we love and um, it's a, we try to keep it positive uh, yeah. as much as we possibly can. That's sort of our, that's sort of our goal with that is to be a very positive kind of 
movie podcast. Uh, there's plenty of criticism, um, you know, at this time of year when there's worst of the year lists coming out, we tend to focus on what we love instead. Uh, so that's kind of our focus. And uh, yeah, you can find my writing on Bloody Disgusting and at manorvellum.medium.com. Um, that's really the only places I'm writing right now. Occasionally a couple things will pop up other places, but those are, those are my main outlets at the moment. Perfect. And all that will be linked in the show notes. So do give uh, movies for life a listen. I really like it. And I love having kind of those double features that you may not necessarily think are films that would have uh, a link. And as kind of listening to the discussion you're like oh wow These well some some really of my favorites together. have been really surprising you know we did um um filmmaking one that was singing in the rain and one cut of the dead and it was just like the perfect double feature and it's still one of my favorites. We did one that was uh Deliverance and Beavis and Butthead do America that ended up being again, just sort of like this perfect double feature because they're so dissimilar from each other, but they have enough that connects them that just makes them fun to watch together. Um, so anyway, those are that's just an idea of some of the stuff we do. Well, there you go. So yes, um, all that will be linked in the show notes. Give, there you go, more to listen to uh, with, with Movies for Life. Uh, to wrap things up, gotta say thank you to Anatomy of a Scream for being the heart and the home of Bodies of Horror, as always. If you want to reach out to me, uh, you can do so on uh, the socials. Uh, also, all this is going to be linked in the show notes, but I'm still on Twitter, Twixt, uh, whatever it's called, um, <laughs> at Bodies Horror. Um I have been on the Instagram and really liking Instagram uh, quite a bit. It's it's fun. Um, so I'm over there at Bodies of Horror Podcast. Um, I'm also on Blue Ski uh, as uh, I think Bodies of Horror Podcast as well for Bodies of Horror. Um, I always forget. Uh, but that will be linked in the show notes. So if you're one of those folks that have made their way to I call it blue ski just because I think I heard Mike Snoonian from Pendulum yeah. say I it. I call it like, blue sky, but you know, hey, that's just me. Well, it's blue sky, and I think Mike is just being Mike in contrary, and <laughs> being like, I'm going to call it blue ski. I hear um, I hear it both ways, so it's it's fine. Yeah, there you go. Um, but if you're uh, someone that has made their way uh, to that platform, feel free to uh, check me out there. Um, yeah, or, you know, go old school. And I hate saying old school. You can also send an email, uh, bodies of four at gmail.com. Uh, let me know your thoughts. If you've seen this movie, how is that with you? Um, where you would put this kind of in a ranking of Craven's films. That's always an interesting discussion. That is an interesting discussion. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, as always, and also if you have films that you think would be an interesting kind of conversation here on the pod, always feel free to reach out and say hello. I love getting feedback and 
messages from folks and I've been getting more and more recently and it's just really delightful. So thank you to those of you that have reached out. It makes my day. And with that said, until next time. Scream Pod Squad.